Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, messages and previews! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we will soon be resuming our task of reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Ellsworth to Prince Philip. Uh, I'm currently doing the research for the next batch uh, of consorts, which will comprise Isabella of France, Philippa of Hainaut, Anne of Bohemia, and Isabella of Valois. Tell, tell us all where you've been today. I've been to the British Library today, so I've been on holiday for two weeks. And then, obviously, to, well, we're recording on a Monday, which is my uh, Rex Factor day, but we're recording post-bedtime, because I spent the day in London at the library. Oh, yes, he did. Thank you, you lovely privy councillors that paid for his uh, little um, off-peak day saver. Although I'll have to uh, reimburse myself, because I haven't used... Well, I've never used this card, but the previous card I haven't used in about five years. got no idea what my uh, code is. (laughs) Oh, mine's easy. I once paid for a drink at the pub with you and needed a wee or something, so I passed the card over, and I've never felt so cool as when I was just able to say to you, yes, okay, got it. In you type. No one steal from me, please. (laughs) Um, But that is my... um, for that card, anyway. <laughs> well, it's not my one, so I've got to. Uh, I've got to contact the bank. I thought I was going to be a completely wasted trip. I had twice disaster or almost disaster because I was checking last night all the details of stuff that I needed. I had to re-register um, as a reader because my original thing had expired, um, and then I was checking the books that I got out, and one of them was there going to arrive today the other three that i was getting out all showing as having been ordered for the 17th of august which for the benefit of the future listeners is before i wanted it is that not a problem though is that is that not a problem though because it's ordered so it's there sitting going oh someone ordered this but no because they order it for the day and then they just put it back again and you have to order it and it was saying you have to order 48 hours in advance which for a Monday is actually Thursday because of days off. And I discovered this on, well, actually it was Saturday night, so I couldn't do anything. So I was like, hang on, does this mean I'm going to get in there and I've got one book and then that's all I can do because it's 48 hours? Well, thankfully, today is the day that they've kind of been properly back to normal and thus they return to like a 70-minute ordering. 7-0? Well, that's the maximum time. It can take less than that, but I'd got one already, so I could just be reading that one and then... But aren't they getting them from some stores in like an old tin mine in Cornwall or something? No. <laughs> oh, I thought like, of... that's what they did and then... I think you're thinking of tin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when I need some tin, <laughs> I skydive bell up the mine. Yeah, how long is that going to take out? About 70 minutes. Got to go from Cornwall. Minutes. But, yeah, the fact that I'm calling up Cornwall for Tim is not even the most amazing thing. The fact is it takes 70 minutes by any form of transport. (laughs) That sounds really fun. My other alarming thing was that to re-register, you had to have two ID documents, one with your address uh, and one with your um, signature. So 
I was thinking, well, always got the driving license in the wallet. I thought I'll bring my passport, and that's that does the two. Forgot to bring my passport, and then discovered on the train that my driving license wasn't in there. Oh God, Graham! This is like I've gone on I know. to the British Library, <laughs> <laughs> ordered things for the wrong day, forgotten all of my identification. But I mean, that I wouldn't even tell you about that. Like that's <laughs> very, very standard for me. This is absolutely abnormal for you. What's, are you okay? Well, I think it's because I I realised that my driving license is going to expire in October, <clears throat> going to expire in like October or something. So I was going to renew it, and then the website wasn't working. So I'd got it out of my wallet, and it must have just not got back in again. Yeah. Uh, but it was a panic because again, I thought, well, if I don't have any ID, I won't be able to register. So what happened? Well, I got my bank card, which has got my signature on it. Mm. on the back, and they accept online bank statements. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, all of that fascinating behind-the-scenes magic that is the British Library. I could have told you about the fact that there's a cat at the door. Not your door, the British Library. <laughs> oh. For the benefit of the listeners, Ali has just, with no sense of irony, turned round and looked at... <laughs> well, there isn't a door, but he's looked round... <laughs> I didn't know what the, what in the flaming fancy you were talking about. <laughs> what do you mean? There's a cat at the door. There was a cat at the door of the British Library. Apparently it has a resident cat or a stray cat that hangs about. That's somehow um, really charming and quaint and sort of redolent of a Paddington Bear book. They had a Paddington Bear exhibition on. Oh, really? There you go. It sounds like a little Paddington Bear day out. Did you have sandwiches with you? No, you can't take food. (laughs) Oh, drat. How did you eat? Uh, I went to the cafe. Oh, that old chestnut. Can't eat food apart from ours. But Braintree Village, uh, a shopping centre, has a cat with its own Facebook page. Somehow that's less... doesn't have the Paddington Bear nature Mm. to it. Anyway, um... So I'm doing my research for the next set of consorts. So um, before we get to the next consorts, as is now uh, a bit of a habit, we're doing messages and previews episodes to help uh, fill the gap and to hear some more of your correspondence. Because I think now that I'm trying to keep a sort of a slightly more regular episode time, it makes it a bit harder to get lots of messages in. Mm. So we're going to have these bumper message episodes. Santa's sack is bulging. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And we are free podcasts, but if you'd like to hear more of us with bonus content, then you can sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor to join the Privy Council. Anyway, let's hear what you've all been saying. Messages! Well, it wouldn't be Rex Factor without the obligatory mention of Dunstan. Oh, right, okay. Has he been on the telly or something? <laughs> uh, in response to a fantastic consort card provided by Jenny Black on Instagram, which you can uh, search out for her at Genghis Khan 666 that's spelt with G-E... No, it's not. That's spelt J-E-N-G-H-I-S-K-H-A-N 666. Uh, David Shaw commented uh, that he could also imagine Dunstan as part of a set of playing cards, but very specifically, one of those cards that has a load of boring rules on it. <laughs> yeah, the card that is always left in the pack is like, well, what is that? Um, Joker? Question mark? Maybe, but that one, no one ever reads it. Yeah, 
That is rubbish. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Incidentally, for anyone unfamiliar with the console cards, so for the first two series of Rex Factor, Ali used to describe uh, a playing card in packs made by Heritage uh, Playing Cards Limited, which had an artist impression of the English and Scottish monarchs, but they didn't do one for the Scottish uh, for the uh, consorts. So we've asked listeners to uh, design their own ones, send their own in. So we've had some fantastic images provided, but these have dried up a bit since the Saxons. So it would be great. Uh, to have some more for the Normans and the Plantagenet consort. So whether you've done some before and have fallen out of doing it, or if you haven't done any yet, we'd love to see them. Stick drawings, watercolours, whatever it is, we love them. I'm going to have to start wielding my pen. Mm. Um, That is interesting. Do you think people were more inspired by the fact that we had no idea what the Saxons looked like? Actually, we've got no idea what these Norman ones look like either. Yeah, mostly. I suspect it's just that it was a new thing before. And also that we had two massive gaps in the podcast that probably killed a bit of the momentum <laughs> yeah somewhat what was that we should, yeah, we should tell people actually when you said uh, back the british library is back to normal it's because of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 2021 in case people are listening to this in 10 years <laughs> uh laird stephen mcrobbie has an interesting question regarding the question of popularity in history Throughout the series, you often mention that so-and-so was unpopular or X was well-liked throughout the kingdom. How would people in the remote highlands, etc., ever know what the king is doing, what his policy are, what his policies are, what his allegiance is to anyone? In short, how would they know he or she is a good, great or pathetic king? That is a good point. And like, I've, I've wondered that about um, us. How do we actually, let alone them, how do they then report to us whether they thought it was a good king? Hmm. way off in the future it's, yeah what's the answer it's a very good question I mean from a very basic personal perspective I guess my answer would be because historians tell me that they were on a more satisfactory and deeper level um, I guess you know I suppose people probably didn't really know what a monarch was like unless they'd been directly affected by them um, but you know news will spread of military victories or defeats Times of hardship, talk of rebellion also helped to create a sense of a monarch, whether being good or bad. Um, a lot of what we maybe assume in terms of public opinion is likely based on the views of chroniclers, um, who will obviously have their own particular slant on whether a king is good or not. Um, and also whether, you know, we've got the nobles um, rebelling against them. Obviously, at some point, we do actually get people's recorded opinions, but for the sort of earlier medieval period... Yeah, I guess we just have to infer a lot of the time. But it would be interesting. I do wonder if there is an historian who has specialised in this, or if anyone is aware of an historian specialising in medieval public opinion. Yeah, because it's more than the, the historiography. And mm. All that does is tell you how they were, how their, how their, how people's views on them have changed, not the views at the time. Mm. It's a very specific question, isn't it? Hmm. I think you've just discovered a new branch of history that <laughs> someone's going to pay for a chair at a university for. <laughs> uh, now, another tricky question here from uh, Dritan Brati. Having covered the English monarchs of the preceding 12 centuries, what, in your opinion, is the most important event in your history and how does it relate to the monarch under whose reign that event occurred? Same question, but for Scotland. Well, I'd just ask you. <laughs> Well, I was thinking if we restrict it to things that are quite specifically centred around royal history rather than some major events that might have happened to be in someone's reign. I mean, about Le Breton. 
Yeah, you'll roll your eyes here, but I might say, for English history, Alfred's victory against the Vikings. Lending to an 878, because if he'd been killed and the Vikings had won, there might not be uh, an England or an English speaking nation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay. So, you know, if he lost everything, literally everything is different, which I suppose when you're the first in the line is kind of, you've got an easy win with that one. But nevertheless, that is a major one. I mean, something like the English Civil War was an extraordinary period of profound radical ideas. must have seemed like anything can happen. Uh, and it's such a momentous thing to kill the king. But I guess the fact that we end up with the Restoration makes it feel like a blip rather than a... Yeah. And and a lot there's a lot of temptation to see the most important thing as a period of violence, which it usually is. Mm. But it might be something like smallpox getting eradicated (laughs) um uh and i'm trying to think of one that could fulfill that brief smallpox being eradicated smallpox (laughs) getting eradicated is um is my uh penicillin internet i'm not trying to internet i'm not trying to be a uh a smart potato but i wonder if it is possible that that it's not a war but if it were a war, <laughs> yeah. if it was a war, were a war, how close, how close did the Spanish Armada come? Was that? But I guess with this, it's quite easy to tur- for all of this to turn into kind of a what if question, isn't it? Like what yeah. might have been had mm. the event been different? So I was, it's my guilty pleasure that. Yeah. So I was thinking with Scotland, like the death of Alexander the Third, Margaret the Maid of Norway, are these major turning points. Scotland's quite a strong country at that point, getting on really well with England. Alexander the Third and Edward the First are like you know, best buds, everything's happy. So although Scotland does end up independent again with Robert the Bruce, it feels like the impact of Edward Wars has quite a permanent impact on Anglo-Scottish relations. Yeah, I suppose so, because later it does become part of a broader union. Mm. Maybe something like um, Harold, Harold's house cars breaking and chasing William. Mm. That moment, if they'd have held... Maybe that was that was um, the history on the knife edge again. Mm. I'm just trying so hard not to say the Battle of Britain, basically. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> a rather quirky message now from uh, Jill Hayser about the Lambton Worm. Oh, I um, I read that to Ruru. Do you? I was expecting you to be uh, reacting with incredulity here. Well, she was asking, because she'd recently watched the film Lair of the White Worm and was asking us what we thought either of the film or and or the legend. And I hadn't heard of either of them, but I'm guessing you have heard of the Lambton Worm then. Um, well, I should um, should say that the version I know is is six pages and maybe 36 frames long uh, an Osborne <laughs> version nice but it's a it's a corker what happens in your version very straightforward your your average son of a lord doesn't like going to church they can't oh my default microphone has changed to external microphone hmm. do i sound different you do hmm. shall we pause and yeah definitely Oh, I've got to get my breath back. <laughs> computer malfunction. Um, so, young fella, doesn't like going to church. 
says, I'm going to go fishing instead. So already he's got my sympathies yep. <laughs> massively. Oh dear, catches a giant worm, like really quite a seriously terrifying monster of the very deep seas in this in this little river. Uh, and an old fella says, whatever you do, don't put that uh, back in the river. You've got to kill it because it will come back and cause trouble. So he puts it down a well. Weird. And then goes off on crusade and comes back with a suit of armour totally covered in spikes to save the village from the Lampton worm. And he goes and goads it. And it's a constrictor worm. And it constricts around his suit of armour covered in spikes. And he lops the head off. Yeah. Started similar to my one. Um, my one has that um, is a lamprey. It's des- I've seen it described as. Oh. It's, called, it's still the Lampton worm, but I guess the lamprey sounds like a more plausible large worm. Well, it is, a, it is isn't it? It's a fish. Mm. Uh, it grows up to be a huge monster, poisons the well, um, kills and eats the livestock, and it wraps itself around a hill seven times. Various yes, yes, both of those things as well, yeah. Various knights try to kill it, but are killed themselves. So when he t- comes home, a witch tells him he has to kill the worm, but he must then kill the first living thing he sees, or his family will be cursed for nine generations. Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, we had a witch as well, I forgot, but none of that curse business. So his plan is that he'll sound his horn three times when he kills the worm, and his father will release a hound, which John will then kill. Why don't you just choose a a, a worm or a ladybird or something? That, well, just not mammalian. <laughs> I don't know. Having the excitement, his father forgets to release the hound and rushes out. This is one job. <laughs> one. You had one job. Oh, I heard a horn. I heard a horn. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and John can't bear to kill his father and thus condemns nine generations of his family not to die peacefully in bed. God, that took a turn. Yeah. No, that's... No, I didn't like that. For the uh, kids one. Yeah. I think that's true of everything these days. I was just telling you before <laughs> yeah. we started recording. I just can't play any of those um, violent games. It's all about Nintendo. Uh, so that's the book. Um, I then looked up the film. So the film is inspired by a book by Bram Stoker and is then a loose adaptation of that. So it's probably quite a loose connection to the actual original legend. But it's a film by Ken Russell. I know that name. Who? What is he? He's an he's he acclaimed, acclaimed British director. Uh, the film stars uh, Amanda Donohoe, who uh, we will most recall as Toast's wife. Oh, yeah. She was also yeah, yeah, in Madness yeah. King George. Uh, Peter Capaldi and Hugh Grant. No way. Uh, and Hugh Grant subsequently is reflected on the film in typically self-deprecating fashion. I'm not sure if it was meant to be horrific or funny. When I saw it, I roared with laughter. As ever, I get to play a sort of upper-class young man. I have some exciting things to do. I get to slay a giant worm with a big sword, cutting it in half. Very, very symbolic stuff. I think that Hugh Grant would get on terrifically well with James Blunt. (laughs) They've both got the same sense of humour, I think. Now, a few people have got in touch about uh, the podcast itself. So Patrick Maguire has a suggestion for how we rate subjectivity. Mm. I think subjectivity should start with a five by default and only lose marks for evidence of having made life worse. 
Often they get zero when there's no evidence, but if they'd been actively terrible, some evidence would have survived. Oh man, that is a great point. Yeah, so starting as a fight, it'd be interesting whether that would change our scores if we kind of start in the middle and then go up and down rather than start at zero and need something to take us up. Because after all, if you start at zero and everything's bad, we don't give a, a negative score. Yeah, no, I th- I'm I immediately right behind this as an idea. I guess it's maybe trickier for monarchs where there's evidence of good and bad, so you might score a four, but actually there are quite a few examples of some good stuff that you've done. So then it seems odd that someone of whom you has left absolutely nothing gets a five, and you think, but I did do some good things. It's just, you know, real life is complicated. Yeah, but I think, though, uh, that's why they're hovering around that middle mark. They might get a six as well. The odd one will get through on a six. It probably would have been a five. It'd be good news for the uh, hashtag remember Iaths of this world. Oh, yes. Less good so point. for that medieval monarchs with a tough intro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're thinking, isn't it? Is there is there sealing their final wax parchment? This is going <laughs> to play merger on my subjectivity. Yeah, it's their sort of coronation day. It's like, sire, the French have invaded and the plague is in town. Ugh. And there's a fire. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Can someone get me a horse to walk backwards, please? Just something. <laughs> Everyone's saying this is so much worse than the last guy. What did he do? I can't remember anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a solid five. No, it's interesting, though. It is interesting as a way of uh, approaching our thinking. Yeah. That yeah. if you just maintain the status quo and just sit there, then, you know, that's all right. But some people would love that. Mm-hmm. Imagine if nothing had changed in our life lifetime. I can think of some people of my parents' generation who think that's <laughs> some sort of paradise. Um, I, I, how do you feel about actually taking that up? Well, you could do that. You could Because that's just something, I guess, in your head that you can just be doing now. You can, in your head, just start yep. at a five. So, in a sense... But- the uh, the interesting thing will be, will you end up at the same place and think this is about a four? Or will you be more generous because you think, well, actually, this is my base level is five rather than having to work up? So it'd be interesting to see if it changes your outlook. Yeah, you're going to... I will... I won't remember, though. No, that is true. <laughs> so you will have to remind me that that <laughs> is what I'm doing in my head. No. So, Ali, you're at a five. What? I didn't say anything. <laughs> I think I will remember this. I think that's a really, really good plan. Uh, Anna Litzkow got in touch with the suggestion for longevity after listening to our Henry III episode. Now, we have uh, obviously changed this twice uh, in the meantime, but I thought her suggestion was an interesting one to discuss, nevertheless. She said, How about awarding points according to the percentage of the ruler's life that was spent on the throne? Henry III would receive a score of 86 as he reigned for 86% of his life. 56 years in power, 65 years of age. OK, perhaps this isn't the answer after all, but I've typed this whole message so my thought is coming your way. <laughs> Cheers from a 2020 fan listening to your 2011 podcast. <laughs> oh, I, she's made me laugh. <laughs> um, but I suppose that's, that's just... Um, like, does that matter? No, and, and technically it would mean that if you if you were a one-day-old baby, became king and then died, that that would thus be a hundred. 
100%. Perfect longevity. And Charles would get not a sausage. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially, I mean, I'm not sure Monarch deserves more credit because their predecessors died when they themselves were young. Although I suppose you could argue that regencies tend to be difficult and thus if you are able to be a successful king for a long time mm. as a regency. But I don't think it would be fair as longevity, but I think it would be an interesting thing to know in terms of percentages for monarchs who spent the yeah. most amount of their life, proportion of their life as monarch. Um, I was well, going to calculate it and decided I didn't have time. So if Anna has done, or if anyone else wants to do that, then... Uh, well, I've got my, um, my helpful chart here, Graham. I think I'll show you this before. One second. This one. Do you remember that? Yeah, I'm not sure I do. Um, it's really good, but the printer was terrible. So uh, <laughs> it, it depends an awful lot on a colour key, uh, and they all look the same. <laughs> but um, it it's fun the way it starts way back here, mm. and so modern day is down there. But it their their entire lives is the bar, but the bit in white ah. of the bar is their. Right. A bit when they weren't a king, and the mm. bit in purple is is the rain. Um, so some of them have fun split ones, um, like Edward the Fourth, for mm. example. I can say knowledgeably <laughs> looking at the, at the chart. <laughs> Cr- Did I say Edward or Henry? Uh, it'll or be the case for Edward and Henry the All sixth. Right. Yeah, so um, it's good. But I'd like to find that out, yeah. Yeah, so if somebody wants to do that, or if not, I'll get around to it at some point. But yeah, it'd be interesting to find out. Um, are you free for the F- We Have Ways Fest? Uh, probably. I need. To, I think I am free. I just need to sort of... Sort. Oh, man. That's going to be awesome. I wonder if it might be a bit much for me. <laughs> well, no. Hang on. <laughs> what? You can't leave me or let me go there alone. <laughs> you, we are... We are a Rex Factor podcast. <laughs> I might be asked questions. <laughs> That's true. Now, we've got, uh, we've got the Rex Factor team to come up on stage. Uh, Graham couldn't be here today, so Ali's going to field uh, all of those questions. Oh, I'd have to just say, hang on, I can get him on speakerphone. <laughs> and the reign of Robert II, Ali, there was a crucial church question, wasn't there? Could you? How did you d- deal with that issue? I, I, I dealt with it mostly by tea and saying yes a lot when it was being talked about. No, it's, obviously it's fine if you can't come. It'll just be a different affair. I'll um, just go as a, a fan. <laughs> Whereas your business hat will be very much on. <laughs> oh, lovely. It'll be screwed down. But um, uh, more of... um, Because I, th- I thought when you said, I wonder if it'd be a bit much for me, <laughs> that like, you get World War Two overload. And in the nicest way possible, because you like it so much. <laughs> but because I thought it's obviously You're like sure it's rubbish. <laughs> no, because like it's obviously so perfectly fills that place that you need. It's like somebody designed a podcast that just got yeah. that niche. Like not the <laughs> Second World War. Like anyone could find a Second World War podcast, but there's yeah. a there's a bit. And Ooh. I thought, is it going to be yeah. too niche for me? It's like when, um, for me, uh, someone squeezes my foot and, oh, they just get the right point. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. And you can just press play and constantly have that. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that did that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so what you're saying is for you to be witness to that 
would be a little bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't intrude. Uh, I can sort of understand now. Tanks. Hmm? Tanks. Oh, tanks. I thought you said Hanks. I was like, I don't think he'll be there. Mm. <laughs> Although Tom Cruise was in Birmingham the other day. Stranger things have happened, my lord. Apparently he uh, ordered a uh, chicken tikka masala and he liked it so much that he ordered another one straight away. That's obscene. <laughs> Two masala, Jeremy. <laughs> but Come on, however much you like a curry, which frankly is absurd anyway, mm. it, it's so filling you can't just say, I'll just do that again. <laughs> Connor Lewis got in touch from Bergen in uh, Norway to let us know that on NRK TV uh, there was a documentary series about King Harold V of Norway, so the present incumbent, uh, and his wife's diplomatic missions around the world. And the title of the documentary is Rex Factor, The Royal Couple's Travels for Norway. No. Connor suggested maybe Harold was hoping we'd do an episode on him. and was just doing a subtle hint that we'd pick up on. But... Uh, I don't know. We should maybe be writing a strongly worded email to uh, NRK TV. I'm just. I mean, I'm, unless we we notice a spike in our Google hits, <laughs> and we say to our very much, Gov. <laughs> I think all our listeners in Norway have just uh, tuned in for the wrong thing. Yeah, this is great. But um, <laughs> where's Harold? Uh, speaking of uh, potential future subjects for episodes, uh, a suggestion here from Mark Allen Donaldson. As I am now a privy councillor, <clears throat> a just monocle, and thinking about future series, I was wondering if you'd ever thought of doing a between-seasons playoffs of all the split decisions, revisiting with prior knowledge the monarchs and consorts who just missed it, and seeing if highlighting their strong points can give them that final push onto the mountain. A wild card. Hmm. So I think it's a really interesting idea. So we've obviously had some close and some... Uh, <laughs> this is well worded by me. We've had some close and sometimes close decisions. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it would be interesting to visit uh, some of those. Give us, give, give the listeners a chance to have another think about some of those near misses. Were we too harsh? Do, do we get it right the first time round? I mean, obviously everybody's thinking about Anchor the Peaceable there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I mean, if I back down from that. <laughs> The whole, it makes a mockery of our entire showbiz life. <laughs> but there are plenty of others who we get messages about or who are near or split decisions. So, yeah, maybe we could like pick a few from a series and do like a special episode on those near misses and do a vote on either whether they deserve honorary Rex Factors or maybe if one of them deserves an honorary Rex yeah. Factor. The ones, the ones that got away. Yeah, it's like uh, pre-season friendly over in uh, Japan or something. Yeah. Uh, now a few messages about us. Us? Us. Okay. But we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> uh, Victorian Hippo on Twitter mused on that classic issue of how to picture your podcast hosts when you don't know what they look like. <laughs> so uh, this is what she has in her head when she's listening. Oh, I'm worried. I think Graham looks like Tim Downey. And Ali looks like Josh Widdicombe. I don't know who Tim Downey is. Obviously, you can uh, people can Google these if you're not familiar. But oh, yeah. Tim Downey is the uh, a mustachioed chap best known to us as the one who isn't Clem Fandango in the recording studio in Toast of London. 
Oh yeah. Well, I know him. He's on um he's on telly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean Well uh, Josh oh, Whittlecombe yeah. is a sort of little ginger comedian with curly hair on the last leg. Yeah. He's what else is he in this guy? He's in loads of things. Uh Horrible histories, yeah, of course. Um this isn't interesting, me just talking about Tim <laughs> Downey. But you're not a million miles off. You've got the right colour hair there. I think and I think it's closer for me than it is for you, I think. Yeah. I th- they'd be an interesting duo, though. Now, uh, a number of people have been in touch regarding your memory or uh, lack thereof. Um, so oh, Patrick God. Maguire, again, um, said... I've just reached Malcolm the First, and the pod has been a chink of light in lockdown, but I have to wonder if this happens to Ali between episodes. And I've just sent you uh, the link oh, right. to Patrick's, or rather the tweet from Patrick. Uh, yes. So, uh, I mean, for people who aren't looking at that uh, tweet <laughs> that I've just sent to Ali, it's Will Smith in Men in Black doing the pen flash that wipes people's memories. Yeah. It's, of it's specifically or something that's just happened. I can't. I can't remember what it was, but that tweet. <laughs> uh, in response to this, uh, Risa Riker suggested that this is just your Socratic method, i.e., asking question after question, but in your case, forgetting the answer each time. Yeah, that's it. Part of a larger plan. Uh, Alexandra Ashour on becoming a Privy Councillor had a similar question. One question torments me. Does Ali really regularly forget all the facts he must have heard five or six times by now, or is he just a brilliant actor who again and again shines with superior performances at feigning surprise? Oh, I don't know which answer I prefer there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I suppose it's up to them to decide, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think? Again, I feel like Carl Pilkington here. Like everyone's saying he's an actor called Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just turn up and Graham appears on my little computer screen and tells me something. As far as I'm aware... It's the first time it, you've ever heard it. Fir- <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't as, know what, who knows what happens up there. As recently as our last consort episode of Market of France, uh, Sam, Kelly, uh, Sam Kelly said, Listen to this just now on my way to commentate in the Copper America. Top stuff. Cool. I know the drill, but we're still struggling not to crease over with laughter at Ali's discovery of the young Henry for what must be about the 20th time now. Is he a performance art experiment? I'm not joking. (laughs) What is the young Henry? (laughs) Seriously, what is the... I'm worried now. So, the young Henry... not that they don't mean the young Henry from um, that film that you made me watch. That terrible will uh, old film, the, the line in winter. winter about Henry the Second. Yeah. So they mention the young Henry in that film. The young Henry was the oldest son, oldest surviving son of Henry the Second, who was crowned co-king in Henry the Second's lifetime but dies before Henry II, and so never really becomes properly king in his own right. But it's this slight curiosity who was technically king. So who's the white ship fella? That's the son of Henry I, William Adelin. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy that somehow... We, we talk about his reign so much, 
uh, Henry II's reign, mm. so much, and he's got a lot of kids, and they all do something. Yeah. And then there's this other fella. Who does a lot. Does he, though? So he's really the one that leads the Great Rebellion against Henry in 1173-74. And he would have been king if he hadn't if Henry II hadn't died. No, he would have been king if he hadn't died because Henry II died. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if so, only my um, father had di- hadn't died, I could have been king. That's not how it works. Uh. Uh, um okay. But what I mean is he uh would have been like he'd have been big Henry potato, the third. like Yeah, like like um like we know Richard the Lionheart and Yeah. So he's Richard lot. Lionheart's older brother. It might have spared us John. Mm. Um, maybe it's because they're such big characters. Yeah. And are actually kings. Mm. I can't imagine that that reign can possibly squeeze anything else in. Because, you know, we were in Dover the other day. Or I was. You were, yeah. Um, I was sat here waiting to do a podcast. <laughs> you know we were having all that fun. <laughs> um, you were there with me in my mind. Uh <laughs> oh god we sorry uh yeah there was a port um a tapestry of beckett or something hang up and mm. i was with my friend again oh yeah you see even that happened as well yeah forget forget that that there's this all this crazy stuff going on and he manages to squeeze that in yeah and Eleanor of aquitaine I mean, he's he's up there for a reason, isn't he? Mm. And to also have a mystery son. I mean, no one else. <laughs> mystery <is>. son. <laughs> <laughs> Good job he had a spare. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think uh, all those questions about uh, the veracity of Ali's memory. I think we've. Uh, we've well, what do you think, Graham? I mean, you've known me for a long time. I think some of these things get forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think you know me. You're getting into that strata of um, of friends where you know we stayed in touch, so know me very well. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you uh, know the ones that I no longer know. Yeah, I'm getting to that strata of ones that you do still though. I still know yeah. because I'm afraid, as you can imagine, this personality type is not well attuned to keeping <laughs> friends <laughs> because. I I lose my phone. Um, you know, I'm not making excuses. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is that the young Henry needs somehow to make his impression on you because you always used to forget the existence of the film uh, The Lion in Winter. I mean, I suppose obviously mm. seeing it does help, but nevertheless, that is now in your memory. Yeah. And he I wasn't in it. That. He wasn't in it. No, because he was dead. So it takes place basically just after he's died. I tell you what, though. And that's why the young Henry sons. has to decide who gets what land and who's going to be king because the young Henry has died and he was the heir. Okay, because do you know who I was thinking of? Mm-hmm. Godfrey. I th- he's got two mystery sons. He was who I thought Henry was. Godfrey? Is, doesn't he have one called Godfrey? Henry? Henry Jeffrey. Second. Jeffrey. Je- Jeffrey. 
Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is in the film, but never becomes king. Never becomes king. He's got two mystery sons. Um, <laughs> imagine a King Jeffrey. Yeah, it only happened. Here's a top tip: mm. if you have friends called Jess, short for Jessica. Call them Jeffrey for a fun spark to your day. <laughs> I have a friend called Jess that I call Jeff, and I, it's fun. Let's uh, shift the focus away from us and onto our more impressive listeners. Uh, Alana has made a very impressive pledge on her potential future listening habits for the podcast. She says, I only wish I discovered you sooner as when my daughter Lyra, now three, was first born, podcasts are what got me through the night feeds. If I have another one, you will certainly be in my ears. Please keep recording so I'll still have episodes when the time comes. I may even listen to you in labour. Oh my goodness, don't do that. Oh, Well, if she does so, she'll be in good company and joining Kate. So Kate says, hi there, long time listener here. I can't remember which king you were up to when I started listening, but I've got married, built a house and had a baby in the same period of time. I was evening listen- I was even listening to Rex Factor while I was in labour, and it seems like I'm not the only one. I'm very curious what the mothers of your children think about you having coached at least three other women through giving birth. <laughs> Despite my campaigning, we didn't end up naming our son and heir Henry, but he did end up with a middle name Alexander, at least, who was one of my favourites from the Scottish season. Oh, uh, right. Well, I this is... What, a privilege to be present at the birth of more humans? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... Uh, and you'd have stayed conscious throughout those ones, presumably. <laughs> yeah, I might, I, well, I mean, possibly. <laughs> um, the uh, The... Names that I was getting called in in one <laughs> labour ward. Um, I meant I I didn't imagine I would be good labour companion, but you know, great, great that some people <laughs> think so. Uh, a different, though, still highly impressive location for Rex Factor listening comes from Jessica Letts. She says, uh, uh, "Jeffrey, Jeffrey Letts." <laughs> she says, "Hi, Graham and Ali from sunny Arizona, USA." My sister Sarah and I discovered Rex Factor a few months ago and have really enjoyed every minute. I especially enjoy listening to it while swimming laps. It's pretty hot here oh. in uh, Arizona, so it's the only pastime in summer. So I clarified, and indeed, she listens to the podcast while swimming. How? Like waterproof ear- earphones? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, th- I assume that was the, the response. <laughs> Not like loudspeakers around <laughs> yeah. the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that um, constitutes our oh. first documented aquatic listener. Well, that's quite that's a, that's a uh, one for the history books. <laughs> now, the last mini series concerned the mother and two consorts of Edward the First. So I've been saving up lots of correspondence on Edward the First that we've received over the last few years. Mm. So Catherine uh, Wayhill shared with me a 1927 tourist guide for Hull that she found which uh, proudly boasts being Britain's third port. Right. And it has various Edward references. It describes him as perhaps the very ablest of the medieval monarchs. Uh, Yeah. 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 More. And uh, credits him for his excellent work in Hull. 
the He's English work in Wales. <laughs> the English Justinian came, saw, and named Kingstoner Sir Hull, now our royal city of Kingston upon Hull, gave to it its first charter in twelve nine nine, and also showed his practical business like instinct by personally purchasing in exchange for lands in Lincolnshire parts of its splendid riverside site. Mm. So he bought up some of the uh, dock. Yeah. They're just gangsters, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Really? Or maybe they have more strings to their bow. Uh, Shashila, uh, Shashila Patwari got in touch from the US and shared a sports blog which ranked all the English monarchs in terms of their uh, in terms of their potential ability to play basketball for Northwestern University. Oh my lord! That slow news day. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was in honour of uh, Meghan Markle's then impending entry into the royal family. Oh, right. Anyway, where do you think Edward was placed? I reckon there'll be a, a, the top ten will be chock full of Edwards, brim, you know, brim to the cram. Well, Edward uh, you've was... got Edward the Third, I reckon, will be in there as well. And mm -hmm. Edward the Eighth, is he the abdication Wimbledon one? Uh, he was the abdication one, not the Wimbledon one. Who was the Wimbledon? He, he was a potential Wimbledon. answer for the Wimbledon one. George the uh, sixth was the Wimbledon one. Elizabeth's dad? Yeah. Played at Wimbledon? Yeah. <laughs> huh. I don't know why that's more impressive rather than her uncle. <laughs> I mean, it's closer. Um, Edward, I reckon he could be... Well, he'd be top, wouldn't he? Longshanks. You couldn't put anyone else there. That's what you might have thought. He was actually placed third. It's, okay, uh, I'll hear them out. It ranked Richard the Lionheart top because there was one chronicler which claimed that he was six foot five. All right. Which I think he probably wasn't, but nevertheless, that's that's also tall. But I mean, Edward was definitely six foot plus plus six two three, wasn't he? Yeah, but that's less than six foot five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> um, but ahead of Edward in second place, of course. The man who should have been ahead of him in Bristol all those years ago was Henry VIII. Oh. What? Fat man? Yeah. Athletic in his youth. Yeah. Well, Edward I, athletic in his dotage. <laughs> oh, well, uh, whatever. I mean, there he is. That's the whole point of this program, Graham. <laughs> Shine a light on lesser known monarchs. And how does that squat toad get sitting on top of the athleticism charts as well? I have <laughs> no idea. I mean, in fairness, only second. So, well, who was first? Richard. Just because he was tall? Yeah. But we've got no record of him <laughs> even playing sport, have we? Or horse riding? Yeah. No. Oh, that's absurd. <laughs> Carrie Seymour got in touch to point out a flagrant mathematical error on my part in the Edward I episode when talking about uh, his expulsion of the Jews from England. I state in the episode that there were 3,000 uh, Jews from a population in England of about 3 million and said that that equated to 1% of the total. And she mm. quite rightly says, mm. no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's 0.0001% of the total. <laughs> Yeah, hearing it back, it makes <laughs> sense. I'm assuming that I conflated two different stats into one point. Erroneously, yeah. obviously. And I just, like a, a child, 
trust you implicitly. Yeah. <laughs> so just went with it. <laughs> but uh, yes, quite right, Carrie. Not 1%. Uh, Joe Pertwee shared on uh, Twitter an example of a GCSE uh, question that she thought you might enjoy. The changes made to Kenilworth Castle in the Elizabethan period were the result of Robert Dudley's ambition to become king. How far do you agree with that opinion? Explain your answer using your contextual knowledge. Yes. Now, I said that you would probably stretch the contextual knowledge to include rather more Edward I than the examiners would have been expecting. <laughs> well, I mean, you'd definitely get him in when it, talking about backgroundy stuff and does it castle design. Uh, Laura Kate suggested that any reasonable assessment of an English castle must surely begin with a thorough analysis of the work of the absolute master of the craft of King Edward I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, while Susan Jones uh, suggested a new Rex Factor challenge of taking any topic and seeing how few logical steps it takes to make it to Edward I. So a sort of six degrees of Edward I yeah. challenge. Yeah. She gave six a suggestion. Yeah. Toilet paper, dysentery, Edward the First. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just. I'm still sorry. My mind's elsewhere because I'm still trying to do the pun. The six degrees <laughs> of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> On oh, oh, for Edward. Uh, oh, I'll get it. Um, all right. Yeah. Hit me. Now you remember quite a few years ago. Now we did. Well, you did. We did it together. Um, you did an apology video for Edgar the Peaceable. Yes. When you rode uh, me as Edgar and apologised to him not for getting the rest factor. Nigel Thomas has pointed out that we're due another video from you in relation to me? Edward. Hmm. Right. Whilst waiting for the Eleanor of Aquitaine episode, I've been listening to random old episodes. At one point, Ali says he would eat his socks if Edward I doesn't win overall Rex Factor. <laughs> oh, damn. All right. Well, I'm a man of my word. I'll eat some socks. <laughs> Now, technically, there are some other monarchs that we've covered, and they've received correspondence as well. So we're going to move on from Edward now. Uh, Dave Lawrence got in touch about the man whom uh, Edward I was named after. I've recently added your podcast to my feed, and I'm really enjoying listening to your show. Today, I listened to your Edward the Confessor episode. How can the patron saint of kings not have the Rex Factor? I know you recorded this episode over a decade, over a decade ago, but I really feel that Edward deserves a retrospective Rex Factor. Which Edward? The Confessor. Didn't we do him again? No, that was Ethelred, the unready. Well, we uh, and we did, uh, obviously, his wife, Edith of Wessex, which involved talking about him a bit. So what does he want? He wants to, us to revise his score? Give him the Rex Factor, because he's the uh, patron saint of kings. Oh, that's pretty good. Did we not mention that? I think we probably did. Uh, well, we we would have had our reasons. I need, think we need to stick by it, Graham. Otherwise, yeah. anarchy lies that way. Indeed, you'll you'll be flooded with texts. So, uh, this is me uh, with my adult hat on, saying, <laughs> "Enough of this silliness." <laughs> uh, Jenny Ike Judy messaged us about Mary Queen of Scots. Dear Graham and Ali, I discovered the pod about a year ago and have just finished listening to the three Mary Stuart episodes. I didn't expect you to have to struggle with the decision whether she, whether or not she deserved the Rex Factor. Despite her reign not being very successful, she's pretty much the only Scottish monarch who is known outside of the UK, with the exception of Macbeth, perhaps. 
at least in the German-speaking countries. Her life and personality inspired the famous German poet Friedrich Schiller to write the play Maria Stuart, and the Austrian Stefan Zweig wrote a brilliant biography and character study about her. I think if two literary geniuses dedicate a masterpiece to her, the decision shouldn't be so hard. Cheerio from Cologne, Germany. P.S. Ali, is there a play about Edward I? Not that I know of, and not that Graham's taken me to yet. <laughs> um, um, uh, I, that is a good point. It's like trying to work out... Uh, or It's like a, a band being massive in Japan <laughs> and completely yeah. unknown over here. Hmm. Do we take that into account? Although I think um, probably fair to say uh, Mary Queen of Scots, not a very obscure figure here either. No, no. But, but it's interesting that some to think yeah. which monarchs kind of break through to make an impression I mean, on countries who don't learn about it just because it's part of their history. But it's like, yes, this is a famous person, even yeah. though it's not our monarch. Like an American president, like a mm. well, that's a bit more our history. But yeah, no, that is true though. And it, 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 when you say that, I can't actually believe we were struggling over it. Really, <laughs> were we? Well, I think it was like she says the issue of the fact that she, her reign was. You know, unsuccessful and ended in disaster. But we did give it to her. Yes. Good. <laughs> yeah, she definitely deserves it. Now, um, the answer to the question of whether there's an Edward the First play, I did a quick bit of research, and the answer is yes, there is. Uh, it's called not Shakespeare, please. It's called the Famous Chronicle of King Edward the First, and was written in 1593 by the Elizabethan playwright George Peel. <laughs> it sounds rocking. Yeah. I was going to say, you're saying not Shakespeare, but if I'm going to say it's an Elizabethan play, right, you probably yeah. want it to be Shakespeare more than any of the other ones. It's like niche Shakespeare. Uh, the play focuses on Edward's struggles with Llewellyn Ap Griffith in Wales and John Balliol in Scotland. Edward is presented largely as a fair-minded and sort of model monarch. Good. Uh, but the villain of the piece is his wife, Ellen of Castile. Uh, she is presented as an adulterous and slightly unhinged maniac. Why? Uh, why, I think, is really due to the fact of the anti-Spanish mania following the Spanish Armada. And because she was a Spanish yeah. queen, they think, right, well, let's just make her crazy. I mean, I seriously think that would have been the norm right up until 1996 when Braveheart was released. <laughs> he, he's the model king. <laughs> um. An interesting thing, you mentioned Shakespeare. In 2000, uh, John Southworth uh, released a book about William Shakespeare and his sort of role as an actor, and he argued that the original actor who played Edward I on stage was none other than William Shakespeare. Oh, Rex fact. Is that is that a Rex fact? Is that true? I'm not sure there's a lot of... Subs re I haven't read the book, reading the Amazon reviews. I'm not sure if there's necessarily a lot of substantial evidence to back that up. But, I mean, you know, new subjectivity score. We're on five then, as that as, <laughs> as a possibility. Yeah. I'm happy with a five. I'll take that. <laughs> Rex fact. Point five. William Shakespeare played Edward I. First. First, first yeah. Uh, so a long line from uh, William Shakespeare to uh, Patrick Magoon. Mm. Yeah. In relation to the consorts, we debated whether or not it was fair that Elfgiver got a higher scandal score than her husband Edwig for that notorious coronation threesome. Yeah. So this is where the other participant was Elfgiver's mother. 
Oh my word! It's not even funny. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> Stephanie Wiseman thinks it is fair that she got the highest score because, as she says, they both skip out on the coronation feast to have a threesome, but only one was committing incest. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, I mean, how long after the, were, were they already married? Because it's mother-in-law, at least. Well, indeed, I suppose in the in uh, biblical terms, that's. Uh, mm. But uh, still, I think a good point. A good point. Ah, now Sif Boynton has corrected our pronunciation of uh, Sigrid the Haughty, because uh, we've uh, we initially were saying Sigrid, and then after mm. our um, chat with the saga thing, chaps say so they thought Sigrith. More realistic, but this is oh, what yeah. Sif says. Hi guys, my mother's name is Sigrith, same as Sigrith the Haughty. This is in fact a semi-common name here in Denmark, and as you know, also a Viking name. I have to sadly tell you that you did not pronounce it correctly, but hardly any English speakers do. My father is American, and in his family they call her Cece. For your convenience, I have attached a little voice clip of how it is correctly pronounced. Couldn't help myself, as I kind of feel like this is my Edgar the Peaceable moment. Sigrid the Haughty was completely robbed. Now, come on, guys, that woman kicked ass. And uh, What did she do? Oh, tell me after, yeah. Well, she was the one who may or may not have existed, but... Uh, oh, no, that's the wrong thing. But... Oh, uh, yeah. The version of yeah. her that we are told about uh, did a pretty cool hall burning. Mm, yeah, yeah, I remember her. Now, that's fine. Okay, here we go. This is how it should be. Pronounced. Cyril. 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 But yeah, I would never have gone with that. Sounds like there's no. an L that's been introduced. Um, um, it sounds quite a lot like my daughter trying to say seagull. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a bit. <laughs> and I mean, no um, disrespect with that. It is genuinely uncanny. <laughs> seagull. 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 More like Steven Seagal, which is instantly the name of our seagull. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you, Sif. We will we will have a go at that. Try to say that if it was Seagull the Haughty. Seagull yeah. the Haughty. Uh, Amy Burker had an answer for our question about what the naming of a chivalric order founded by Richard the Lionheart for Berengaria uh, was all about, which was called the Order of the Blue Thong. Yeah, And we couldn't find out why, but it was obviously something that caught our attention. But she says, I hate to be the one to burst the bubble on the idea of a chivalric order of blue knickers, but thong, in this case, probably refers to leather thong or cord, often associated with footwear. So it's oh. more like the order of the blue shoelaces than order of the blue knickers. Which, to be honest, sounds like a club I'd like to be part of still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sounds brilliant. Hello, what are we up to tonight, lads? Yeah. <laughs> this this meeting of the Blue Shoelace Gang is adjourned. Uh, of course, what you're always really hoping for with messages, though, are consort limericks. Oh, yes, bring it on. <clears throat> so here's another one from Louise Brimcombe. This one is for Berengaria of Navarre. King Richard wed young Berengaria to win friends in the Aquitaine area, but Richard, she found, was rarely around, preferring his bedfellows hairier. <laughs> oh, I always worry when you start these that things, you know, I've, I've built them up and they're not that funny, but they. Do, 
Always ending a proper belly laugh, that one. <laughs> who, so who who was her husband? Richard the Lionheart. Did he? Well, there's a room of him and uh, Philip Augustus. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on Crusade, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's magnificent. Now, as we said at the start, you can get lots of bonus content by signing up to become a Privy Councillor on Patreon, and we have a lot of new privy of new privy councillors to welcome. Though I say new, but we're still working through quite a massive backlog of shout-outs due to our various delays over the COVID period. So we're currently going back to December 2020. Crumbs. So if you've donated in the last couple of months, um, we've not forgotten about you. We're just we're getting there. Mm. But mm. we give a big and belated welcome to. Gigi Jason, Amy Viz, Vanessa Murray, Warren Wilson, Paul Brimacombe, David Van Rijk, Ambry South, Wintergreen 22, Maggie Wolfe, E.G. Tyler, Brianna Gillen, Elizabeth Levy, Sloan, P. Albin, Caroline Wilson, Casca Grocer 2003, Stephanie Jane Peters, Emily McMahon, Riley Javoy, and Will Donovan. Excellent, excellent work, one and all. You have bought Graham's little canteen sandwich at the British Museum. I got, <clears throat> I got a sandwich, an orange juice, an apple, and a Victoria sponge. Nice. You were having a good day, weren't you, with that Victoria sponge? A custard? No, custard. Oh, no. No. I mean, I'm, I don't, but, you know. Um... It wasn't uh, an option. I I thought you'd have you'd have um, jacket potatoed. No. Do you not? No. I think I had a memory of you being in that gang. At, um, I'm the opposite yeah. gang to the jacket potato. I'm a non-jacket potatoer. I never mm. used to like potatoes at all as a young person. Never ate potatoes. And then it was only when I discovered salt that I then started having chips, roast potatoes, and other bits and bobs. But I think jacket potato might still be a little bit too much potato. Really? To have a whole meal which is literally housed in a potato. <laughs> it's too much potato. <laughs> They're not potato Kievs. <laughs> you can just... Um, I know, I think you're doing potatoes wrong. I reckon you can put enough oil and salt on the outside of that jacket potato. Slip right down. What about... um? Those sliders, like the skins, loaded jackets, they go by them of aliases. And filled with cheese and, uh, well, cheese. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, yes, I mean, because I like cheese, so ultimately if I do just stuff a jacket potato full of cheese, or baked beans and cheese, then mm. I'll, I'll, I'll get some pleasure from it. Mm. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's not like you're squeezing your foot or anything. Yeah, be better if it was toast. Yeah, that might be true. Anyway, here are some messages from formerly new Privy Councillors. First up, La Polk. I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning and think it is wonderful. I am a history teacher and always recommend listening to Rex, Fact listening to Rex Factor to my students. Listening to your What Happened to Henry VIII episode is even a homework task for my year 12s. Oh, good man. I mean, I say good man to everyone, to be honest. <laughs> Just maybe, maybe I shouldn't. This from Blaise Kennedy. Just want to say how much I uh, love the podcast and enjoy listening any chance I get. I'm almost caught up on the latest season, having recently raced through the Scottish series and looking forward immensely to the special episodes. Thanks for all the great work in podcasting. 
P.S. Constantine II should have won the Scottish series. This is the hill I will die on. <laughs> I'm not. Which one was he? A mass murderer? No, he was the one who was around for a long time, old man. He fought against Athelstan. And then just went quietly away? And went quietly away. How's that for knowledge? Uh, Jenny Scollin had some thoughts on Edward I. Back to Edward. Mm. Thank you both for the many hours of entertainment you've provided during lockdown. Your podcast has truly helped me through some very boring and very tough times. Growing up near Stirling, the battles of Stirling Bridge and Bannockburn were a large part of my education. I really enjoyed your Edward the first episode as it taught me a lot about a king who I'd only learnt about in a negative light. Still think the right side won in the end, but really interesting to hear about it in that different light. <laughs> well, I mean, the right side did win in the end. Both of us in the union. Eve Jeffrey has a question for us. My question for you both, but this probably appeals most to Ali, is what is your favourite piece of historical scandal? My personal favourite is the Seymour scandal. Catherine Filial was the first wife of Edward Seymour, Jane's brother and future Lord Protector, and it's rumoured that she had an affair with her father-in-law, Sir John Seymour. If this is true, that would make for awkward family gatherings. Although there isn't any contemporary evidence to prove this, I don't see why we should let that get in the way of a good scandal. I'm all for that. <clears throat> but I don't know what my favourite is. Was it... Um, I mean, a, there was quite a lot of sex with nuns that was going around at the time. Edgar the Peaceful, obviously, yeah. Oh. Um, I don't know. I mean, Henry II was good as well, wasn't he? Yeah. I remember something about a French poet. That was Mary Queen of Scots. Was it? Yeah. There was a French poet who was obsessed with her and was found hiding under her bed. Oh, that's less funny now. That's quite creepy. Yeah, so I think you were were saying, you know, a French poet is kind of an instant ding of the scandal bell without nearing to any of the details. Yeah, especially when he's lurking under the bed covers. And then she was also associated with an Italian music teacher. Yeah, that's definitely rum. Um, yeah, I'll go with that. Oh, no, uh, what did we put the horse going backwards down the um, It's not really a scandal, it's just a fun no. story, that wasn't it? I mean, there's the coronation threesome that we mentioned with Edwig and Elfgiver yeah. and the mother. Yeah. I, I can't believe there's not a massive bit of scandal that immediately leaps out at me. So it's a good question. <laughs> What's yours? I don't know. Beckett, I bet. Well... I mean, I think we usually tend to prefer the um, saucier elements of scandal rather than the sort of brutal, yeah, the brutal side of things. Yeah, but I mean Beckett—that's you don't get any other um, um, royal scandal outside of the twentieth century that school children would know of. And he didn't any even other. Get, he didn't even get top marks for scandal. How? I know. I think because we decided that he might not have meant it to happen. But there's enough else to push that up. And he did, He's yeah, there was. There was plenty of other stuff. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The things you'd change if you had your time again. Not least having an affair with his uh, own son's betrothed. Yeah. Which is similar to the Seymour issue, actually. That. Uh... Yeah, maybe she's got it on the head there. Yeah. Uh, and finally, from Privy Councillors, R.S. Bort. I've got meaning to join the Privy Council and have finally done it. Thank you for oh. keeping me entertained on my work commutes and long walks. 
Impressed with Graham's in-depth knowledge of the subject and love Ali's humour. Looking forward to catching up on the special episodes now. Oh yeah, well there's an awful lot to crack into now. Mm. Shoutouts! Uh, I also want to do some shoutouts to other podcasters. Uh, so other things you can listen to, particularly when we're a little bit quiet. A couple of new podcasts inspired by Rex Factor have come out since last we podcasted. One is Battle Royale, which is reviewing all the kings and... I was going to say queens then, but there aren't any. All the kings and emperors of France from Clovis, from Clovis to Napoleon III and deciding which monarchs or emperors will get to the guillotine. That's so interesting. There hasn't been a single French queen. Hmm. Regnant. Yeah. How interesting. Hmm. Well, oh, there you go. I already want need to listen to a podcast <laughs> about the subject. Uh, and also newly out is Tudoriferous, which is reviewing some uh, 200 of the movers and shakers at the Tudor court who weren't monarchs. Okay. Yep. That so sounds good. They're starting off with the reign of Henry the Seventh. so their first episodes are on Margaret Beaufort and Jasper Tudor. Mm. I imagine that would get really good with Henry, though. The Eighth. Yeah, I mean, actual Henry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like sometimes like on uh, on Amazon or Google or something, if you type in Henry the Seventh, and it says, did you mean Henry the Eighth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can easily imagine that. Anyway, so check those out. Battle Royale and uh, Tudoriferous, both uh, newly out. Um, one that's been going for a, a year and is like Battle Royale, produced uh, by uh, Privy Councillors, is a flat pack history of Sweden. Oh, I've heard heard of that. Yeah, so it's not um, a Rexy factor-based podcast, but it's a light-hearted history of Sweden in English. Um, so be sure to check them out. And that's by uh, Orsa and uh, Chris, who we met again at uh, London. Really? That's mm. brilliant. I um I'm sure I've heard of that independently of this. Like that's the fir- certainly the first time we've ever talked about it. Mm. Unless it's somehow made its way through to my emails, but no. Brilliant. Well, nice one. Yeah, so uh, check them out. Um, also remember to check out if you haven't previously done so some of the other Rex Factor inspired podcasts like Totalis Rancum. Uh, reviewing the uh, Roman emperors and also um, the American presidents. Uh, saga thing, reviewing the sagas of the Icelanders. A grim reading, which are doing the grim uh, fairy tales. And Pontifacts, they're doing the popes. Mm. Nice. Uh, and another and... one that's not Rex-inspired, but that you should check out, is History is Sexy, which is presented by a uh, privy councillor, Dr Emma Southern, who was on our consort introduction episode, uh, and yeah. her uh, friend Janina Mathewson. And they were recently recommended in the Radio Times, which described them as amiably daft. <laughs> which I feel would probably be appropriate oh. review for all of us. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's um, that's just the life's goal, isn't it? <laughs> just have a nice time, be a bit daft. <laughs> Uh, not a podcast, but I also wanted to recommend for anyone who's on uh, Instagram the account Lego Minifigure Monarchs. It's telling the story of English and British queens, uh, kings and queens, via the medium of Lego. So, sort of each post, it will be like a scene from English history, or English royal history, but done entirely in Lego. So we've got things like Ethelred the Unready presenting a cheque to the Vikings, and indeed, mm-hmm. that we've been talking about a few times today, the coronation threesome of Edwig, Elfgiva, and her mother. Oh, that sounds good. She obviously thus features a, a Lego version of Mr Dunstan, uh, and an excellent use, but subtle use, of a teddy bear. <laughs> previews 
So that's all for the messages. Uh, we also wanted to share some previews of our bonus content with you. Uh, so first of all, special episodes. Privy councillors commission these. They're, they're the bonus special episodes on a whole variety of topics, such as uh, William Marshall, the Battle of Waterloo, tea, nice. all sorts of things. Um, and you can access those either by being a patron at the special episode tier or above on Patreon, or you can purchase individual episodes for £2 each uh, on our new home for selling special episodes because they used to be on Podbean but that got shut down when we left so now you can find them at payhip.com forward slash Rex Factor Podcast Easy peasy Easy peasy and our latest special episode is on the 19th century economist David Ricardo uh, perhaps, not a film, perhaps not a familiar name to most people but he was a major figure in the development of economics as a discipline uh, and also led a very interesting life to boot can I put something out there to like-minded Rex Factor listeners? Mm. It don't worry, it's not dull. Because <laughs> you actually enjoyed it. I did. Yeah. No, it was great. But I definitely would go when choosing uh, a Rex Factor episode to listen to if I'm a privy councillor or pay for. I would go no, no, um, no, 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 and he'd, I'd skip over him. Mm. But no need. It was great. You'd skip over him prior to having the experience of hearing all about him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> now I know about him. That's what I mean. It was, it's an abstract or other obscure topic to have chosen, but I'm glad he did. Yeah. Um, so here's a clip from the David Ricardo special episode. So Mill writes to me, says, You can greatly improve a science on which the progress of human happiness to a singular degree depends. I will give you no rest till you are plunged over head and ears in political economy. Who is this guy? Like, <laughs> this is like a karate kid or something. And he's training him up with brutal... Brutal um, economics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a Radiohead lyric. Um... <laughs> Why is he telling him what he has to do? Why isn't this fellow saying, actually, I'm just probably going to just focus mainly on the tennis? Well, that, there's a certain extent, to which that, certain extent to which that is what Ricardo says. Um, he agrees, after a bit of reluctance, to write this treatise, but more for his own amusement than with a serious view to publication. And his reluctance is mostly due to the fact that he doesn't have much confidence in his writing abilities because of his limited education. Oh, yeah. So Mill takes on the role of schoolmaster, basically. So he sends Ricardo exercises, writing tips and things for him to do to improve, <laughs> improve his compositional ability. Encourages him to write as if for a friend who had a limited understanding of the topic. Um, block. <laughs> this is where we can see when I mentioned the overbearing father of John Stuart Mill. <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course, same guy. That's a shame, because I thought that would have been such a cool duo, the two of those guys. <laughs> but um, the dad, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he is overbearing. He is quite overbearing. At least Ricardo doesn't have him as a father, but uh, he's still pretty pretty hard work, even just as a friend. Yeah, were they friends, though? Was he friends with the son, because they've sort of been in the same boat? Uh, well, he's quite he's a, bit too, yeah, he's a bit too old for that, really. Um, Ricardo still complained about the very difficult art of composition and uh, admitted that he was often inclined to throw my writing aside as a task much beyond my power to accomplish. And uh, what you said Why about... Why you just get a scribe? I don't think it's the physical act of writing so much as the uh. mental how-to-phrase-words bit. 
just speak. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. About my How's dad. that book coming along, Hilary Mantel? Well, it's, it's really hard. I'm just, just, just speak. All <laughs> just right. Speak. You know, just speak, and I will write down what you say. Yeah, you write it down, this, or the, say it. There's and I'll this write it. Um, king, and he's big and that and fat, <laughs> nasty as well. <laughs> uh, going back to what you asked about Ricardo just wanting to play tennis in eighteen uh, six in May of eighteen sixteen, he abandoned the project for two months, uh, admitting that he struggled with the temptation of being out in the air in fine weather. Yeah, I've I feel his pain. Um, I feel I still think a scribe or just a ghostwriter. Get in touch with Jordan and see who she used. <laughs> so that was David Ricardo. Um, sign up or uh, pay up. Pay. <laughs> <laughs> Took out the whole thing. Oh, since we've had adverts, Graham, you are a changed man. <laughs> Ruthlessly commercial. Uh, all our monthly patrons get access to the Privy Chamber, which is uh, an episode we do after each of our main podcast episodes where we review uh, a monocle consort. Uh, we go into more detail on the subject, so there's often extra information uh, that I didn't put into my original notes that I uh, share with Ali. Um, and also lots of other chat about stuff, historical and not historical, uh, such as Ali's book reviews. I'm not doing that now, am I? No, we're not doing that, and we're not okay. doing a clip from that. Here's a clip of us discussing some additional information for Eleanor of Castile in her Privy Chamber episode. There are a lot of impressive women roles to play in the Barons' War, and some of whom are very excellent links to William the Marshal Marshal. William the Marshal 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 William the Marshal. Uh, Edward's uncle, uh, Richard of Cornwall, his first wife was Isabel Marshal, who was a daughter of William. Ah. Hmm. Uh, and another one of William's daughters, Eva, saw her husband publicly hanged by Llewellyn the Great of Wales after he was discovered in the bedroom of Llewellyn's wife. Well, can you do that one again? What was that? Eva, another one of William the Marshal's daughters, yeah, saw her husband publicly hanged by Llewellyn the Great of Wales after he was discovered in the bedroom of Llewellyn's wife. Oh. Ooh. Right. Eek. Uh, Llewellyn's wife, who incidentally was an illegitimate daughter of John. Yeah. Uh, interesting, though, Llewellyn wrote Eva a letter of apology after executing her husband, explaining that his lords had insisted on it. Okay. And he hoped that it wouldn't affect their business dealings. <laughs> we cool. We cool. We cool. <laughs> uh, she clearly was an impressive woman, though, this Eva, because she uh, then held uh, the castles and lands that he'd owned in, uh, in her own right. Hmm. And she was the mother of two very notable women. Uh, Isabella de Brasse married Daphith ap Fluellen, who was the son of Fluellen the Great and the first person to use the title Prince of Wales. Um, is he the one that Edward then has to go on and kick the bot bot? No, similar name, but he's, okay. um, this is a little bit earlier. The other notable daughter is Maud de Brasse, and she plays a crucial role in the Second Baron's War. A staunch royalist, it was Maud who mm. came up with the plan for Edward to escape from captivity. Oh, boom. So it wasn't something that he just did on the hoof. It was actually planned in advance. So she got a letter to Edward advising him to go out riding, tire out the horses, and then take the last one to an escort nearby, which would bring him to her at Wigmore Castle. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Did I say that was all her plan? That was her plan, and the plan worked, of course, and Edward went on to defeat Simon de Montfort in the Battle of Evesham. It was mm. Maud's husband, Roger Mortimer, who personally kills Simon de Montfort, uh, and as a reward, Edward gave him Simon de Montfort's head and genitals. <laughs> Not and, funny, uh, but, you know, he's put the, he's put the willy in there. He has. I mean that's got, uh, that's degrading because it's funny, or yeah. I mean if it were the head, it could be a bit like ruthless Rex Factory hold it above on a battlefield. Mm. When you got a willy in your hands, you're not you don't have the same gravitas. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so can we all just learn from that, please? <laughs> Well, uh, Roger himself doesn't decides not to keep the head and the genitals. He thinks, I know who would like to have this, so he sent them to Maud. Oh, nice. What did she do with them? Pickle them? Uh, well, she was hosting a banquet that night in her oh, great gosh. hall, so uh, still attached to uh, the lance, she uh, elevated de Montfort's head on display throughout the banquet. Different times, I suppose, but hmm? I, I don't think I could eat. Privy councillors also get access to Rex Flicks, where we review films that are connected to kings and queens or other Rexy related subjects in terms of their entertainment value and historical accuracy. And in our most recent episode, we reviewed Braveheart, which I think it's fair to say had one or two issues when it came to mm. the subject of historical accuracy. And a surprise or two in the result. Hmm, indeed. The closing of the rebels, we're still in the first two and a half minutes, by the way. Uh, the closing of the nobles that we see at this point are also some way off. The nobles on horseback uh, that we see riding through the forest are wearing belted plaid. Uh, but Scots didn't wear plaid or kilts until the 16th century, which is 300 years later. <laughs> and what's more, apparently they wear it, um, their things completely wrong. So basically inside out. So she know, as Sharon Crosser knows, it's like a film about colonial America showing the colonial men wearing 20th century business suits but with the jackets worn back to front. <laughs> that is such a great analogy to put it in today's context. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so that's the first two and a half minutes. There are a few other things in terms of characters that we'll come on to a bit later we're just sort of focusing on the events for now but fair to say that the accuracy levels don't really improve after this point uh, after Wallace's funeral they watch uh, bagpipers playing what uh, Uncle yeah. Argyle describes as being outlaw tunes on outlawed pipes oh. yeah uh, in reality bagpipes were never actually formally outlawed in Scotland not even after the Jacobite rebellion oh I see I thought that they were but much well, yeah. After the Jacobite rebe rebellion, so that's just that's playing on an inaccuracy and pushing it back hundreds of years. Yeah, and at this point in history, bagpipes probably hadn't actually been introduced to Scotland. Oh, good. Okay. So they weren't outlawed, and they weren't even there at all. Anyway, that's all from us today. Next time we will be back with a new and very exciting consort episode, Isabella of France, Queen Consort of Edward II. Super. She's going to be great. Mm. See you next time. Cheerio.